Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the U.S., the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Hi, guys. Today, we're speaking with Laurel Mintz, the vivacious and award-winning founder of Elevate My Brand, a marketing agency based in L.A. You'll hear how Laurel's journey to becoming a marketing boss had many twists and turns, but she also shares some excellent marketing tips and advice for business owners. We hope you enjoy the episode. And if you want to meet and learn from like-minded female business owners, then make sure to join our Facebook group, The Female Founders Network. Just head over to Facebook and search The Female Founders Network and you'll see our group and page. Hi, Laurel. How are you today? I'm so well, thank you. How are you? Oh, so good. And um, I just heard a little story, started to hear a little story about how you were named. And I want you to tell us because it's the cutest thing ever. <laughs> so yes, can we start and it's there? a good memory point. Yes, it's a great memory <laughs> point whenever people are confused about my name because I get, I, people get it wrong all the time. I get Laura, Lauren, Lori. And then when I tell them this story, they never forget it, which is that I'm from, I'm Laurel from Laurel Canyon. My dad was a hippie in the 60s, lived in a commune, hung out with Frank Zappa, Jefferson Airplane, that oh whole crew. <laughs> yeah, and I got named after it. And actually, oh even cooler, my parents used to buy houses and flip them. We went back and bought the namesake house, and I got to live in it when I was about eight years old, which is really cool. Oh, oh my God. That is the coolest story I've ever heard. Your dad is uh, – don't tell my dad. Your dad is officially cooler than my dad. <laughs> <laughs> He's still the biggest hippie I know, and Aww. you can read between the lines on that one. <laughs> yeah. Aww, that's so Cute. Um, so, what part of the world are you calling us from? Uh, we are in lovely Los Angeles, California, and it is about seventy-two and sunny right now. It's beautiful. Oh, oh gorgeous! It's about the not same to make here. anyone jealous. <laughs> oh, good. Well, this is our summertime though, so it will get much hotter today. Hey, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So you have an interesting story, and we just we like to kind of keep this part open. So why don't you let us know how you became the woman you are today? Like what shaped you and how you became the entrepreneur that you are? Sure. That's a big question. Wow. Well, since I was five years old, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So whenever you ask a little kid, you know, you have, you have multiple kids, so you know, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. And they're like, I want to be a ballerina. I want to be an astronaut. I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. And everyone's like, oh, shit, watch out for this kid. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny when um, girls say that and they're like, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> you know, yeah. when boys say it, they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So um, I did. I followed that path. I went to undergrad at UCSB, went and declared as a law and society major, and then ended up at law school at Rutgers on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. um, and after my first year of law school, I was like, this is terrible. These people are awful. Mm -hmm. It's so competitive and combative. And none of the things that I thought were really um, organic to who I was, you know, energetically. Mm. Um, and so I went to the dean and I was like, I'm done here. I'm done wasting my time and my parents' money. I, I think I need to, to drop out of this program. And she put me in the MBA program and said, this is the program you need to be in. It's creative and team building and problem solving and collaborative. And she was totally right. And um, I never really looked back. Although because I am a, a a Jew from the Valley, your parents basically tell you you're either going to be a lawyer or a doctor. So I did follow through mm -hmm. and I got barred in California. 
Um, and then the, the biggest, I think, most influential part of how I came to be an entrepreneur was that my dad got sick when I was about 26 years old. Um, he's totally healthy now, so it's a really happy uh, story. Mm-hmm. So if everyone could just knock a little wood, <laughs> that would be much appreciated to, oh. to maintain the, yeah. the luck there. But um, I ended up having to step down from the law firm that I was working at to step into run his company, which I don't know if you're familiar, but the Bassett Furniture brand, are you guys familiar with that? Yes, over there? I am. I am. So, you know, it's a huge national chain. Uh, he was the West Coast partner at the time. And so at 26, I stepped in and was interim CEO for three years. So I did all the buying and training and sales and hiring. And I had a staff of 60. And I was the youngest person in the entire company, not to mention the youngest woman, wow, which yeah. was really interesting and challenging. But ultimately, what it taught me when he stepped back in and got healthy was that I was an entrepreneur. And I, I never really looked back. And I started the agency about a year after that. Wow. Do you think that if you hadn't done your law degree that you wouldn't have been taken as seriously stepping into that role at that age? Mm. Do you think that helped you in in some way? I definitely think it helped me. Um, you know, I was kind of full of myself at the time. I had all this education and I and bravado and I was like I could do anything. Um you know, running a business is the practical application of all of the educational pieces that I was certainly not prepared for at that time, <laughs> but because I think because the people knew that I was stepping in to make sure my family could survive emotionally and financially, that was a big component in, in uh, the acceptance of it. And then, of course, yeah, the education piece. They're like, oh, she actually does understand, at least theoretically, what you know what business should look like. Wow. You know, well, first of all, I'll say everybody's full of themselves at 26. Totally. I would say that's <laughs> <laughs> like everyone thinks they know everything at 26. Mm-hmm. And then by 36, mm-hmm. I think we're all like, oh, fuck, I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's completely exactly. I'm normal. still figuring it out at 42. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that you stepped in and just and was like, okay, I'll just jump in. I'll just do it. That is really like commendable. That's mm. just incredible. So what did you learn? You. Like, it wasn't easy, that's was, for sure. Can you tell me, like, what was your biggest screw-up <laughs> when you went in and oh did that? Oh, my God. What was your biggest well, How learning? much time do you have? Jeez. <laughs> no, go ahead. Um, you know, my biggest lesson, and this is, you know, I do a lot of mentorship, and I, I sit on a lot of boards for nonprofits, and I always um, talk about how everyone is faking it. And mm. I think that's really the biggest lesson that I still take with me today and share with as many people as I can is that, People, some people fake it better than others, but nobody has it all figured out. And so as long as you can keep down the same path and you're open to um, you know, new experiences and, and challenges and how you can overcome those effectively, I think that those are the biggest lessons you can take out of any situation. And nobody's perfect and perfectionism is a fallacy. So I think yeah. people need to get over that. Those are my two big lessons, I think. Yeah, Yeah, that's so true. And if you are a kind of a perfectionist at nature, it can be quite hard to let that go. But it's when you do, then it's so freeing. Yeah, it is. It really is. Yeah, I love that too. Like everybody that everybody's faking it line. It's so funny. Like I think when you're young, when you're in your 20s, you're in a room full of like C-suite executives or leadership or whatever. And you just take everything they say as the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, totally. And then as you get older, <laughs> people say things, and you've got enough life experience and just critical thinking skills that you're like, mm, is that true? Like, what kind of evidence right. or research do we have to back that up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how are we basing that 100%. opinion? Yeah, which is interesting. Okay, so you started the agency right after your dad came back into the business. 
Mm-hmm. Right around 30, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a grown up now and actually figure out what I want to do with my life. I thought I was going to go back to law and I actually applied for and received offers from some of the biggest firms in the world. And I was like physically, viscerally nauseous every time I got an offer that would have made anyone else like, you know, incredibly happy. It was what I thought my dream was. And, you know, when you when you get that physical reaction, you have to pay attention and realize that something in your, in the universe or in your body is telling you this is no longer your path, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like oh. a real, like, I think that's probably another intuition. lesson is, is to listen to your gut, right? Yeah. Yes. Intuition. Exactly. So what did starting your agency look like for you? Did you, like, what did you do? Did you just go out and start finding clients? Did you set yourself up as a business? Like what was your first step? Oh, I started out at seven figures. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just like everyone else, I started faking it. Um, I am a pretty good schmoozer. It's one of my skill sets. I really love people and connecting. And Mm -hmm. I uh, reached back out to my network. um, And I was like, look, this is what I think I want to do. I think I want to focus on the marketing side of my MBA. And if you have anyone that you think would be a good fit, please let me know. And it just so happened that um, I had worked for one of the bigger, um, do you guys remember Billion Dollar Babes? It was like a, it was a sample sale. Yeah. So the LA version of it um, was, oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on the name, but the gentleman who created it here in Los Angeles, um, I had worked for him while I was in my MBA program. And he connected me with this woman named Julie Hewitt, who was at the time one of the top A-list celebrity makeup artists. And she was trying to create her first cosmetic line. And she needed to raise $5 million by writing a business plan and a marketing model uh, to go out to fundraise. And I was like, I could do this. And behind, I mean, I was having drinks with her and I was like, oh, I got this. I could totally do this. And she was like, <laughs> okay, great. You're hired. And I remember sitting in my car and being like, oh my God, that actually worked. I can't believe I just closed my first client. <laughs> so I totally faked it and had that same like bravado, you know, from the educational side. And I just pushed through and that's how I closed my first client. Nice. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. I did the same thing when I was about, God, 23, something like that. Mm-hmm. I remember taking on yeah. like a, it was like a $30,000, $35,000 contract, 36, something like that for my first contract. And I had no idea if I could do half of the work that was involved in the contract <laughs> and had to figure it out. I think that's so many people do have that moment where they're like, okay, I have this set of skills and I know I can do this part of what you're asking, but can I put together this other part? And Mm. then they, they work through it. I don't know. Sylvie, have you ever done that? Yeah. I think that's kind of part of like agency as well is that you have like a team of people that are like, you know, good at different things and you bring it together. And then that's the benefit that you can actually provide to a company because you have like all those different Mm -hmm. skill sets under that one roof. Um, I'm just, I love how you said that one of your skill sets is schmoozing because I think that is an <laughs> underrated skill that is actually like gets you so far because there's that saying, isn't it? It's, it's who you know and networking is like what business is based on. If you're not a totally. natural schmoozer, what are your <laughs> tips and advice to people who, where it doesn't come naturally to them? Like what kind of things do you do? that help you to network and to form good relationships with potential clients and just people. Totally. I actually have one of the best um, tips um, that I think I have been able to give to anyone regarding this conversation, which is, so you, everyone has a network, right? So you start kind of cultivating that network and you reach out to people, but then things always fall flat because you have to 
um, like any relationship, you have to feed that relationship and honor it and make sure that you're following up and all of that. And that, to your point, doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So this tip will kind of get you over that hump. I call it orbiting the universe. And what it is, Mm -hmm. it's super simple. As soon as you are on a call or in a meeting with someone that you feel you could help or could help you or someone that you want to make sure you maintain a relationship with, you put your next meeting on the books in that former meeting or a prior meeting. Mm-hmm. So there's always an opportunity for you to orbit that person's universe. And even if you have to push it, you at least have something on the books that yeah. you can then reschedule so that you don't miss that person. Because that's the biggest challenge is uh, managing people's schedules and making sure that you're doing proper follow-up. And that has been, I think, one of the biggest tips to my success, honestly. So simple, though, right? Yeah, so simple. That's kind of like a sales technique as well, isn't it? To totally. make sure that you've booked totally. in some time. Oh, that's great. And then it comes around and then you've already got it booked in and then you, you're not like scrambling for having to reach out to organize something again. It just kind of naturally just rolls and rolls. That's exactly right. And especially if you don't, I mean, I'm lucky I have a, an amazing EA that handles my ridiculous calendar. But hmm. if you don't have support, it's a great way for you to manage your own schedule accordingly. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is it's really it's really easy for someone to ignore an email, mm-hmm. but it's really right. hard for them to then not show up for a meeting that you set in that last phone call yes. at the end of the phone call. Right. Right. Face to face. Yeah. What yeah and I think time? the important thing is, is yeah, exactly. Booking the time IRL because you're like, hey, does this time and day work? And they're like, either they're going to say yes, and then you update the invite in that moment, mm-hmm. or they say no, and you give them another date, and then you still update it in that moment. So they can't ever <laughs> squirm their way out. And the other really important piece is that I think um, I think people don't understand, especially in, in this current era, that it takes up to 16 touch points for someone to know, like, and trust your brand or convert into a potential client. So huh. you have to think about the entire universe of how you're connecting with that person, whether it's a few phone calls, a few emails, a few social posts, uh, you know, so on and so forth. You really have to think holistically about how you're communicating. Mm, and that's not just like your brand is in your, your business, like what you're selling. It's your personal brand as well. I mean, at the end of the day, you are your business, especially when when you're in a small agency like I am. Um, So you better sell the you know what out of it. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that for a second, because when you are when you have a service business, right, like you have a Mm -hmm. service based business, you are selling yourself and your ability to provide that service. I mean, do you guys agree with that or disagree? Am I I wrong? Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you think then? And I think I like asking people this question right now because we're at this really weird era where, like, before Mm -hmm. people tried to be super professional, button it up, you know, you never talked about your political leanings. You never talked about your personal passions, you know. And now kind of like the the lid's been blown off. Mm, So what are the most important things to you? I mean, do you value authenticity over professionalism or, like, accountability over what – like, what – for your personal brand, like how do you maintain it? How do you build it? What do you emphasize, et cetera? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, for a long time, especially early days, I thought I had to be super posh and super polished. Mm-hmm. I think that was kind of that legal background, that educational background that I had, you know, super corporate. Yeah. And then I realized as the business evolved, and now we're 12 years in and over 250 brands later, that the reason that people sign on with our agency is because 
they connect with either me as the founder or one of our teammates because we all have a very similar ethos. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a lot about authenticity and I think it's just about organic connection as well and defining what your core values are and making sure that you um, are servicing a similar uh, kind of category, right? I don't want to deal with people who are misaligned with who I am not only as a human, but as a leader and as a as an as an owner, because if they're misaligned with me, then they're not they're going to be misaligned with our vision. They're going to be misaligned with our team and our and how we function, and mm-hmm. it's just going to be a misfire all around. So I think that there, to your point, is this really interesting overlap between personal and professional right now. But um, as a small agency, it allows us to really deeply connect much more quickly with our core customers because we're really clear on who's good for us and who's not good for us, and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it helps you kind of call uh, faster, I think. Yeah. So who are your customers? Like, what what are your ideal clients, and how did you come to that decision? Uh, well, you know, for, when you first start out, it's like you'll just take <laughs> the paycheck, right? Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. if you're heavily driven by 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 money. Um, and then as you, as you have bad experiences or issues or um, you start to really more clearly define who you are and who you want to work for. And so I think it starts with defining your core values as a company. So for us, that's authenticity, um, compassion, uh, fun and joy are part of our um, ethos because Mm -hmm. we are a creative agency. So we have to have that creative fun energy. So most brands out there, um, either are or are not aligned with that. Um, So for us, our core customers, we do about 70% of our work in CPG, middle market. So food and beverage, kids and toys, beauty lifestyle, uh, that kind of cap, those kind of categories. Mm -hmm. And then we also have really, we're very lucky to have large tech SaaS brands like Facebook, Verizon Digital Media, Zendesk and Sprinkler. But I love working in the middle market or even the startup space because, and I I heard you curse earlier, so I I feel like I'm allowed to, but nobody's fucked up their marketing yet. (laughs) (laughs) So I love to come in and really help brands solidify their foundation before they have to backtrack and, um, you know, fix things. Yeah. It's interesting to me how many tech companies are really terrible at marketing hmm. because so bad. how many they create the tools and then mm. actually using those tools they it can be terrible at using them yeah well lots of technical yeah. companies they do like product-led product development don't they where they just right. they create something and they're like right and now where are the users and it's like, that's <laughs> right. not really the- <laughs> and now they'll come yeah because this product is perfect yeah it's interesting I think that's a really interesting space for yeah. you guys to be in so Laurel how does someone not fuck up their marketing yeah. as a business like <laughs> if you're listening to this starting out like how would you yeah how, how would you want tell us how not to, to be fuck ups yeah <laughs> <laughs> I love this question um so you know it's about it's about being really intentional and process driven, which I know is unusual to hear from a creative agency. But mm-hmm. I think one of the um, misnomers of marketing is that it is very subjective because of the creative process. So one of the things that we do best is taking the subjectivity out of the creative process. And we do that by really clearly defining a brand's marketing specific goals. So number one in, in being not not a fuck up is being super <laughs> defined in what your marketing goals are and understanding the difference between a marketing and a sales goal. Okay. Right, we know what a what a sales funnel looks like, and at the at the it's a marketing funnel. The sales are at the bottom of that marketing funnel, but there are up to like we said earlier, sixteen touch points that have to be developed and cultivated 
from a relationship standpoint before you're even talking about getting dollars in the door. So it's about being super transparent and clear about what your marketing specific goals are, understanding the difference between those and sales goals, and then defining a clear budget for the year. I don't care if it's a couple hundred dollars a month or, uh, you know, a million dollars a month. You need to understand what your budget and goals are so that you can allocate accordingly and then define what the measures of success for each of those categories looks like. And I know that's a lot easier said than done. That's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. That's why I have a friggin' job. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It really is. It's interesting mm-hmm. because I feel like for people who don't work in marketing, they'll be like, oh, you know, it's just all about being creative and like putting things out there and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And then people who do, and you're trying to be really methodical about it and really measured. That's then, exactly right. And There's a like, scientific method to the marketing process. It's, yeah. It is really, a science. Truly. Yeah, it, it's a business practice. It's very strategic. It's almost like you've got to mm-hmm. think of it like, I don't know about you both, but I really got into the Queen's Gambit over the, the holidays. <laughs> oh my God, so good. And, of course and, you did. <laughs> and like thinking about it, I was like, the, a game of chess is kind of like marketing because you have to imagine if I make this move, there are all these different things that could happen afterwards. Yeah. And you've got to think strategically about where you want to go in order to like win the client over and, and stuff like that. And I yeah. just thought, yeah, it's it's, I love a, it. it's yeah, a lot totally. more strategic than a lot of people give marketing credit for. So it is. That's and that's point. why a lot of brands fuck up is because they don't look at it like a strategic, they don't take a strategic approach. They, they do this, what we call the spray and pray model. And then mm-hmm. they're like, I don't understand why this didn't work out. And you're like, but you didn't have a game plan. You didn't have a strategy. You didn't have a budget aligned. You didn't have any KPIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously this is going to fall short. I, I always liken it to dating, right? If you just texted someone once or twice, the likelihood that you're going to marry that person is slim to none. But if you had <laughs> a bunch of phone calls and coffees and cocktails and then dinners, and then you met the parents and, you know, lived together for a little while, and then, you know, you got married, like that's the that's the process. It is yeah. quite linear, actually. Yeah. 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 So true. I think, too, the interesting thing about marketing today now is everybody's obsessed with measurement, right? And measurement mm. is really, really important. Mm. But then mm-hmm. you get marketers who go so far on that side that they only listen to the spreadsheet printout. Like mm-hmm. this is this right. ad is working, so we're going to do like six more exactly like this. You know, like that's all we're going to do. We're not going to branch out. Like we're we're just no going to go by the numbers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there are people all the way on the other side who are mm-hmm. like, well, we're just going to follow the creative intuition. Where really it's like this perfect mix of both sides of the mm-hmm. brain that create a successful. Yeah, I call it being campaign. center brain. Literally, you're totally yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's bizarre. Hey, um, Laurel, I I was wondering what you think about um, traditional marketing methods like TV ads and billboards and stuff like that in this current era. Um, when compared to digital marketing, because I feel like in my experience, most of what I'm doing um, with my agency is digital stuff and not so much that much in the kind of traditional realm. But do you think there's still a, a place for that? Are you seeing success? And then how do yeah, you measure we, it? Uh, we, <laughs> totally fair question. So we have seen a resurgence in recent years of um, things like hard mailers, right? Like things that you wouldn't think actually delivered. But when you think about it just logically, Think about the number of emails you get in your inbox daily versus Mm -hmm. how many pieces of mail you get. And if you're going to create, and back to the earlier conversation, you have to create something that is creatively, visually really interesting and dynamic. It can't just be, you know, a a piece of flat mail. Mm -hmm. Um, But we are seeing certainly a resurgence, resurgence in that category. We're actually in the process of doing a similar campaign 
um, for Verizon Digital right now. And it's it's all around the mailer, which is, it seems so antiquated, but you're talking to people on in a delivery format that is is less crowded currently. And yeah. everyone's at home. So you have to think about it that way. Yeah, that's so true. And they're like bored and in lockdown and then something arrives in the post and that's so exciting. Then. Here's here's the <laughs> last th- thought that I've been having recently. Like if somebody gives me a little sample of a really good product, mm-hmm. I will 100% get addicted to that product. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. it's something that people aren't doing mm-hmm. anymore. Like it, brands aren't doing it. They're not like sending a teeny sample or like putting a teeny sample in a magazine yeah. <laughs> or something. Like remember when they used to do that? Yeah. I was just thinking mm-hmm. about the other day and I'm like, that is the way to get me hooked on a product is like, I love the smell or I love, you know, like whatever. And then I'm buying that product for like the next five years. Yeah. It's so yes. effective. Similarly, I would rub the uh, the magazine on my neck as well. Oh my <laughs> I totally God. get what you're saying. I, I, or the little tiny vial that they would give you. Yeah. Okay. So we're this, dating ourselves a bit, but. <laughs> we are totally dating ourselves a bit. But I, as a teenager, <laughs> used to have, I used to like pull out the cards with all of the perfume mm-hmm. samples and I would like have them really? in my, <laughs> my dresser so that I could like rub them on my wrist <laughs> before mm. I go out. Oh, they were great ads. I they remember that. It's kind of like thinking about marketing now. I guess there's kind of old school traditional marketing methods it's if you think about it and break it down they're kind of like experience marketing like you create the experience yeah. where you're using the sample you create the experience where you're receiving the direct mailer um mm-hmm. yeah creating that kind of excitement is um is maybe the way forward and something that we could even do more in digital as well yeah I love well and yeah it's well I think it's about connecting digital with that experience part yeah. of the interruption right right no, no no you're right you're right like how do you how do you drive home the sale after that uh-huh. physical experience mm-hmm. yeah and which is not easy <laughs> that's not an easy no, thing no I mean that's why you're seeing such an, a, a surge in influencer marketing and, and micro and nano influencers specifically mm-hmm. yes yeah absolutely one of the things that I think I love that it's made a resurgence and this has been like five a five year six year resurgence is the out of home and like mm-hmm. the um like all the murals like the collaborations uh, yeah. with artists and things that you're seeing That's like cool. what a beautiful and it adds this authenticity to yeah. the brand you know like we support this person which mm-hmm. I think is yeah. really really incredible yeah you yeah, actually, recently we bought a Markami uh, print for Black Lives Matter, and all the proceeds were going to Black Lives Matter. It was like a, it was like a just a black square with his um, that little flower face that he does repeating, mm-hmm. and it was so cool. But to your to your point, it was a, an amazing collaboration that was you know positive end result, um, and we loved the story behind it as well. It was just really great. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Hey, how have you um, adapted your business during COVID? Is, has there been quite a big that kind of uprooting of your team of <sighs> yes. clients how's it going well you know we because we I, w- I would say we're 80% digital 20% experiential so we're lucky that we could pivot very fairly quickly and we created what we call we're calling now deep digital experiential event packages which are kind of small medium and large plug and play uh, digital experiences so the brands that were already in process with us in creating um, events could just quickly pivot mm-hmm. um, and so that was was pretty easy for us if I'm being totally honest and my team has been so amazing and um, actually really productive uh, working from home to the point where they don't really want to go back so I'm in process of closing down our office which 
breaks my heart a little bit because we built it from the ground up and it's beautiful and everything you would want it to be with like the barn doors and it's just gorgeous, which it's hard to take the ego out of the action, but in the long run, it's going to save me six uh, figures a year. So I can't complain uh, too much about that. Right. Yeah. That's a higher. And they're happier. That's, that's right? a whole nother higher. Yeah, right? That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Oh my wow. God. So will you ever have face to face anymore? Like, will you meet in the kind of meeting space at, at any point or just fully work from home? I, I don't know the answer to that right now. Um, I love the human connection and contact, but I have to say, I thought I was going to be super depressed when this all went down. And I took a, a test, a personality test. Um, oh, I'm totally blanking uh, on the name of the test. I'll find it and send it to you guys. But what it sh- shows you is how you present, like what number you present in terms of how you energetically show up in the world and then what your actual needs are within all these different categories. Mm-hmm. And what the test showed me was that how I present in the world is at a 99 in terms of um, like connection and face to face and and all of that, but what my physical need is is like a nine, and wow. so I was it was really surprising, and that's I think uh, indicative of why I'm actually pretty calm about this whole scenario. I haven't felt like I've been missing anything out um, mm. because I'm still connecting in a digital capacity, and then the rest of the, the time is mine, which is yeah. pretty glorious. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I think so many people. Well, and here's the other thing too: you guys still could agencies, brands, companies, you still could get that person-to-person connection by having events or in a post-COVID world, you know, like mm-hmm. flying everyone to a conference that they really want to attend, or mm-hmm. on a, mm-hmm. like a like company or group holidays are bring a team together, you know, like there's so many ways to do it and you don't have to like go to an office all year long. You're exactly right. We just finished our backyard. And so we're going to probably do, you know, a distance happy hour in the backyard when, Uh. you know, the spike isn't happening in California. So you're, you're exactly right. I think it's about just evolving a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember the name of the test is the Berkman test. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I highly, highly recommend it. It was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I love personality tests. Yeah. The (laughs) other Mm -hmm. thing she does, she really does this one. Um, (laughs) The other thing that's really cool in the marketing space specifically, specifically that I'm finding, and you know, I'm working for a company, not for myself, but we're um, hiring our, in our team and being able to hire the best talent and best personality fits that you find from anywhere in the world mm. is so mm-hmm. freeing. Yeah. You know, like I don't care yeah. if you're in New York. I don't care if you're in Austin. I don't care if you're in, you know, Sydney, wherever you are. Yeah. Like if you're the right person for our team, you're the right person for our team and yeah. you can do the work yeah. and, you know, that's great. And similarly, we've actually had some team members that have left California and Los Angeles specifically and gone to other states, and it doesn't make a difference. They're still as productive. In fact, it's actually great because I wake up to a bunch of emails with all this work done. I'm like, this is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and if people want to like, you know, it's I I actually interviewed a woman not uh, too long ago. And she was working for a big tech company. I won't say who. But when they found out that she was relocating, they cut her salary. What? Yeah. They cut her salary to reflect the cost of living in that new city because it was a lower cost of living. And I was like, wow, that is the fastest way to demoralize someone. Yeah. It is. That is such a stupid decision on that company's part. Terrible. And it was a big tech company. Like, it's not like they couldn't afford (laughs) the salary. And I was thinking, you know, like, what a great way to keep people if you can let them work from anywhere, Mm. but then offer them the same salary that they'd be making in Silicon Valley or wherever. Yeah. 
you know, because you've already budgeted for it. But if you let them work from a place that has a lower cost of living, they can afford a better quality of life. Yeah, and then they're happier and more mm-hmm. healthy. And exactly. Just, yeah. And totally. that's the point. You want your I, dame to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I believe that's what they call being penny wise and pound foolish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's right. a great saying. I, I love all of your saying. Yeah. You're so good at saying. Well, she's a marketer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad you have an agency because we'd probably try to recruit you. <laughs> um Okay. So, okay. So we are coming out of a really shit year. Um, We're coming Mm -hmm. into a good year. We're getting Mm -hmm. it started. It's, you know, underfoot. Um, What do you think, like trends, what should people have their eye on right now for all of these entrepreneurs and women Mm -hmm. starting businesses who listen to this podcast? Like, what should they be paying attention to, investing in, et cetera, from a marketing perspective? Oof, I mean, that's such a loaded question. Investing in, I think, women-run companies. I think that's a no-brainer. Yes. We actually just became um, partners in a venture fund uh, called Halogen Ventures. It's a woman named Jessie Draper who, her, she comes from this incredible heritage. Her whole family has been in the VC world for, you know, I think three or four generations back. And her fund specifically is all about investing in women. And she has a saying, and I'm totally going to mess it up, but it's something like, if you want to make billions, invest in women. Um, Because our returns are better. If you have more women on boards, your your returns are better. There's just something about investing in women-owned companies. And they're growing exponentially and starting up at an exponential rate right now as well. So I think, I mean, it makes sense for this conversation, obviously and for who I am as a woman founder, but I think that we're going to see that as a continuing ongoing trend. I'm literally putting my dollars where my mouth is, right? putting yes. money where my mouth is on that one. I research. <laughs> before I go and buy things, I know re- whether it's like a new onesie for my my baby or whatever it is or a big purchase, I mm-hmm. research the company now. I never used to do yeah. that. I thoroughly yeah. researched. Well, now we have the time to, right? And we're, we're in front of our phones and computers all day, every day. So we have the ability to do to do just that. I think that's, yeah. a, that's a really smart thought process. But yeah. it used to be like a nice to have, like when I would hear like, oh, and this is a woman-owned company, I'd be like, oh, great. Or it's a minority-owned company, or it's a company that gives back in some way. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh, great. But now it's like, mm-hmm. if you're not, I why? need to have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, why aren't you doing something totally. in the world? <laughs> totally. And and to that point, the other trend and suggestion really for those listening in who are women founders is to get certified as a woman founder. So mm-hmm. if you go to webank.org, W-B-E-N-C.org, um, at least in the States, uh, you can um, get a certification if you're 51% or more woman-owned. And what we know is that most of the large corporations out there have minority and diversity spend requirements that they are now actually being held accountable to in terms of reporting. So, I mean, to be totally transparent, that's how we got Facebook. We got certified. We met the Facebook reps at a, a national conference, and we got involved with them, and they hired us because we were certified as a woman-owned agency, and they had to make sure that they were spending X number of dollars a year with um, minority and diverse suppliers. So I think that's another really important tip for those listening in. That's a great tip. So just that's WBENC.org. Yes. Women's Business Enterprise National Council.org. Yes. WBENC.org. Mm, I think they need a couple more um, words yeah. or syllables in that name. <laughs> <laughs> right. Terrible from a marketing perspective. But, yeah. you know. What were you thinking? <laughs> Clearly, a marketing woman did not come up with the name of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's an old school organization, they, they, you know, but they're doing so much good work in the world, which is really important right now. Yeah. How good. Um, cool. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us before we let you go? 
Hmm. Um, well, I could uh, I can share that what we're doing uniquely during this time in support of women-owned companies or companies in general, because I'm sure you have an audience that's not just women, uh, we're really paying it forward. So we are uh, doing 30-minute consults for anyone who needs a little bit of an extra push in the marketing category, and we're asking that um, anyone who takes us up on that uh, suggestion donates to one of three nonprofits that we've chosen. So we're paying it forward right now when some of the nonprofits are really struggling or we're really trying to help. Uh, move women-owned companies forward, as well as some nonprofits that we feel really passionately about. So if anyone is interested, you can email laurel, L-A-U-R-E-L, at elevatemybrand.com. And if you're not ready yet, you can go to elevatemybrand.com, and there's a downloadable, I think it's nine easy steps to marketing, so you can kind of DIY it. It's in the upper left-hand corner, so check it out. I love that. That is brilliant. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Laurel. Well, Laurel, you are an absolute badass with like a really cool name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy that I (laughs) met you. you. Um, We're going to connect with you on every platform, we promise. And, you know, keep in touch. I love it. Thank you guys so much for having me on. This was just a, a lovely conversation. And I really feel passionately about the work that you're doing. And I'm just honored to be a part of the dialogue. Oh, thank you. Stay safe. Talk soon. Bye now. Talk soon. Ciao. This podcast was brought to you by Invoice2Go. We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current U.S. pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.